Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. I've chosen today's subject because... I'm useless at smelling. I just don't seem to be able to smell very well at all. And that got me thinking about smells in history. Were they really as bad as a lot of people say they were? Are we losing our sense of smell as time has gone by? I've got two guests with me today who I know are going to have the answers to that much more. Because one's a smell historian and the other is a historical smell designer, believe it or not. Help me out, you two. But, oh, no, before you do, uh, Melissa, you've always got a question for me, haven't you? I've always got a question, Tony. You say you don't smell very well. Is that since COVID? Because a lot of people lost their sense of smell during COVID. I don't know. I've no idea because I can't really remember there are some smells of course that i can smell things that i associate as a really bad smell of course i can smell and stuff like lemons but when i'm eating it's all taste and no smell but taste and smell are really linked i'm sure we'll find out more about that so today i think we should actually or you should smell some things but obviously the listeners aren't going to be able to sniff along with you so you've got to be really good at describing the smells tony do you think you can do that no because i won't be able to smell them that's my fear anyway (laughs) i hope i can and if i can well i will describe them and i'll be honest if i can't smell them i'll say yeah i think just we'll just have to ask the historians to do the job and really describe it because otherwise it'll be boring it'll be boring so let's hope it's not boring good luck with that (laughs) Right, today we're going to do something pretty ridiculous. We're going to spend three quarters of an hour talking about smells, but of course you're not going to be able to smell any of them unless you have some kind of smellophone attached to your listening device, which I doubt very much. Anyway, enough of this rubbish. I've got with me William Tullett, who's Professor of Sensory History at Angela Ruskin University, and Tasha Marks, who's a sensory consultant and sense designer how are we going to do this thing <laughs> <laughs> i think a sniff and chat is the best way forward <laughs> that sounds good yeah. to me 
What's the difference between a scent and a perfume? Ooh, well, I suppose the thing is, is perfume has certain connotations attached to it as a sort of fine product, whereas scent is something we experience every day. So scent is quite democratic, I would say. So when we're talking about smell, there is a difference between scent and perfume. And I would say it's scent that really excites me. William, the reason that I put scent and smells in my top 12 was because I have such a bad sense of smell and I was talking to my daughter recently she said I've got a terrible sense of smell too although she admitted before she got married her husband-to-be was a bit of a dabbler in wine so he started taking her to wine tastings and she learnt how to smell or at least how to describe smell just through being with him and wanting to impress him a bit do you, do you think that's true of most people who don't think that they can smell it's just a question of training up yeah absolutely i think we all think that we're terrible smellers and that we find smells really difficult to describe and actually as the wine tasting example shows once you kind of learn how to describe smells you know you begin to learn a vocabulary and wine tasters will go out you know people are sommeliers will go out into the world and smell as many different things as they can because what they're doing is building up their vocabulary um, what you mean they'll smell trees and curbstones and houses and stuff all sorts of things like one of the best notes supposedly in a sauvignon blanc is cat urine oh really mm. and, and that really is that smell well i say is it really you don't mean that cats actually wee in Sauvignon. I mean, I hope not. There might be some very down market wines where that's the case. Yeah. But yeah. And the sommeliers aren't going sniffing litter trays. There's there's little kits that you have to uh, to train your nose. Oh, is there really? Yeah. What's in the little kit? Just little bottles of examples of things. And actually, you can. We all smell without thinking, but to pay attention to what you're smelling is something that that is learned. So that parody of a sommelier where they're using this high flown language to describe the wine in one sense it's true but there's also a very real down-to-earth reason for it yeah absolutely and actually often kind of the languages they're using are just references to lots and lots of everyday smells because our way of talking about smells is often kind of built on metaphor so it's about comparisons this smells like roses this smells like dog poo and is that how you train your nose or are there specific ways that you can train up well, I mean, I think it depends. Like, there are loads of experts that use their, their nose in different ways. So perfumers, coffee graders, wine tasters, you know, there's people who measure odour pollution who go out and sniff, you know, near factories. And the key thing is, is they all develop different vocabularies because they're kind of looking for different smells. So how you train your nose and kind of what words you learn to use really depends on what you're using your nose for. Why do you think it's important to smell history? I think that our, our sense of smell is such a deeply emotive sense and so to be able to use that to learn from history to tell stories there is nothing else like it it's an unparalleled storyteller and so I think a nose first approach to history just opens up so many new worlds I think those who are interested in history want to know what it was like to be there at the time and smell is a really nice way to think about well actually how did people experience their worlds in the past but I also think that smelling history kind of has a a positive outcome in the present in the sense that we're all kind of trapped often in these daily worlds where we don't really think about smell and so by getting people to smell odors from the past we're also saying hey why don't you stick your nose you know into things on a daily basis and engage with the smells around you because there's an awful lot to learn so smell has really been overlooked as a sense there's a kind of hierarchy of the senses often when we think about them and smell has always kind of resided near the bottoms both literally and metaphorically <laughs> This episode, and I've just thought of this, is a bit like Desert Island Stinks. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is ridiculous. Tasha, what's yes. your first smell? So I thought we would go in sort of chronological order and delve into as far back as I've done so far, which is an ancient Roman burial site that I worked with Trier Museum in Germany. So I worked with the archaeologists who did biochemical analysis of the soil and they sent me a list of all the aromatic ingredients they found and it revealed what might be in the aromatic shrouds that the bodies were buried in, what sort of flora was around in the haystacks that they burnt at the burial sites. So this is a smell which is... A little, yeah, a little, a whiff of history. What sort of smells have gone into it, like incense and stuff? So yeah, there are resins in here, like frankincense and myrrh. So I'm going yeah. to pass you the bottle to have a sniff. I did a ridiculous thing before we started. I had a Vixen inhaler because I'm a bit. Well, you up. might find some parallels in this. It's quite herbaceous, <laughs> but I'll let you have a sniff. Oh yeah, but it's <laughs> it's um, it's almost nothing there, is there? It's very, yeah. it's terribly, terribly subtle. Unless you're winding me up. Yeah. <laughs> the emperor's new scent yeah it's rather nice actually it's quite pleasant but also you can tell it's not a modern perfume you can smell that it's something different in there yeah it's a story that we're trying to tell william i'm going to pass it to will yeah uh, describe it for us in your oh god this is pressure now (laughs) oh wow yeah i mean there is something medicinal about it you can definitely smell the frankincense and the myrrh but i think tasha said before we started the podcast she was talking about how sort of a hay type smell in there as well which I can yeah, sort definitely. Of get as well. yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So yeah. that's something called coumarin, which gives that sort of hay smell, and that's also found in rotting vegetal material, so hay and and uh, flowers and that sort of thing. So what is it? It's a it's an aroma chemical. So when we're talking about what's in a perfume, it's a sort of it's an aroma chemical. It's a recipe, and those could be synthetics or they could be naturals. Uh, there's a whole palette open to any kind of scent designer. That's interesting. How do we smell? What, what, what's the biological process? So scent is also really interesting because of the way we process it in the brain. So our nasal receptors, our olfactory receptors, are in the frontal cortex of our brain, which is also where our emotions are, our personalities, which is why you have a very physical, emotional, I would say, reaction to scent, whereas all the other senses tend to come through the spinal cord at the back. So the way we recall scent, the way we respond to scent, is a bit more immediate. So there's some really exciting things you can do with smell. Um, in terms of memory and and storytelling and all that sort of thing. Have you always been into the idea of smells? Well, my my background's in food history, so I started off in food. I actually wrote my dissertation about jelly, so jelly was my gateway. <laughs> we could do a whole other thing about that. Oh, I've got, I bet you just said that an awful lot of time in, in pubs, haven't you? Yes, my dissertation yeah, yeah. was jelly. Yeah, it's good from the high table to the high chair, the cultural demise of jelly. Oh, you've got to tell us a little bit about that. I know this is supposed yeah. to be about smells. I, I could do a separate podcast yeah. on jelly, but just... Next time, next time. But yeah, no, I mean, jelly used to be a status symbol. It cost as much as a portrait, so you have this sort of world of Renaissance sugar sculpture and jellies and confectionery that really I see a lot of crossover with contemporary so food was my gateway into scent and when I started off playing with smell I've always worked with museums and and cultural institutions and food is quite limiting you can only do so much in those historic spaces and when I first started working with smell it was so I could have freedom to go where I wanted so I would just make things as a smell I would have made as a food but then as I started to get into it I just became completely obsessed with the the possibilities of scent and I, I mostly work with smell. William have you got a smell for us? Yeah, uh, where should we go? I mean, should we stick with... Well, let's let's go nasty, I think. Yeah. We've had something quite nice. So um, He's got all these little plastic bags <laughs> by his side. He's been thumbing through them like a mad genius. 
Will and I are going to try and out nasty each other. We both yeah. have very bad smells with us. I'll let, I'll let Tony <laughs> smell that first. Well, have I got to guess? And you it? can tell me what you think it is. Oh, this or, is or what yeah, it evokes I, for I, you. I'm so blocked up. Now this looks like. Do I pull the top off this? If you just unscrew. Um, oh right, okay. Unscrew yeah. the top. Yeah. Um, I've put it on the back of my hand. Was that you right? You may regret that. You're going to regret it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. It's terribly strong, isn't it? Wow, it's really spirity. <laughs> Actually, it is clean, clearing my sinuses out enormously. <laughs> I've no idea what it is, but I don't mind it at all. It, you said it was really disgusting, but well, so it's maybe I'm like Baldrick. <laughs> maybe I live in the world of disgusting. Exactly. Maybe and um, yeah, maybe you are getting a cold and you can't smell it, but. I was a bit worried when you sprayed it on your hand because it's supposed to be the smell of hell. Ah, <laughs> ah of course. So yeah. It's supposed to be sort of um, fiery and burning and sulfurous and kind of a bit fecal and nasty. Yeah. I didn't get the fecal, but I did get the, 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 the full fiery... No, having another go. <laughs> I'm, wa- I'm waving my arm around. My, my producer, Melissa, is going, wave your arm, wave your hand about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but we designed it to go with a painting. So it was designed to be smelled in a museum next to a painting, that a sort of 16th century painting um, of limbo, where you've got kind of all the suffering souls in hell being tormented. Yeah. And it was all based on descriptions, 17th, 16th century descriptions of what hell was supposed to smell like. So that included, like, it's supposed to smell like poo and it's supposed to smell uh, like burning. But also people said it smelled like there's a great sermon from like the 1650s that described hell as smelling like a thousand dead dogs. Um, so hopefully it's not that bad because otherwise you're going to face some <laughs> I think serious Tasha questions just the went, home. Aww. <laughs> Aww, <no. laughs> The concept of a thousand dead yeah. dogs. Also, I mean, there's an interesting thing with that. And when you are making a smell for a heritage setting, there yeah. are certain things you can't do. And one of the things you have to avoid slightly is sulfuric elements. That's that sort of eggy smell uh, because it discolors silver. So when you're working in a historic setting, I think if you had wow. the complete freedom, it would have been a lot more eggy. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting that thing about uh, about smells that we don't like, mm. isn't it? Well, presumably, there's no reason why we shouldn't like most of the smells that we don't like. Well, I would say smell is a spectrum. So this idea of unpleasant and pleasant smells is sort of that's also going to change for everyone. Everyone has their personal what they like yeah. and don't like. The only thing we are programmed to really hate is the smell of dead bodies, and that's a very primal um, sort of health and safety thing that we're programmed not to to stay away from that but everything else i would say is on the spectrum yeah i mean which means that kind of over the course of history smells have kind of fallen in and out of favor i suppose um and become more or less desirable and that's partly because our kind of understanding of smell is heavily dependent on context so pine for example in the 19th century was kind of the smell of health like breathing in pine forests was you know something really healthy And because of that, they started using pine in disinfectants. So like toilet duck, when it came out in the 20th century, was scented with pine. But then it meant when people smelled pine, they thought of toilets. So the meaning changed and it became a lot less desirable. Oh, of course, yes, because I think of that smell as as being toilety. Having said that, there is one thing that most people hate, which is the smell of poo, except for our own poo. Now, that I find very weird. Got an explanation to that? I don't know if we revel in it, even in our own, but I think... You speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Baldrick, it's all coming out now. (laughs) But I think that um, 
you know, disgust is something that is learned. So we, as children, especially programming for sense for public spaces, children love those sort of more malodorous, more fecal smells. They're drawn to them, they find them fascinating. And that sense of disgust is something that evolves as we get older. So actually, when you watch children around poo, obviously they have no inhibitions about it. They don't have that sense of disgust and it sort of grows with time. So, yeah. And we've sort of trained ourselves to live further away from our own poo over time. You know, like the, the flushing toilet is kind of responsible for getting that smell away from us. Yeah, yeah it's true, isn't it? Because nowadays, like after three minutes, if somebody else goes in, they'll go, you haven't flushed the loo. And yet throughout most of human history, nobody would have flushed the loo because there weren't any flushes. No, it would have just gone sort of, you know, under a potentially, for example, in the 17th or 18th century, under a wooden seat into a kind of cesspit below. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, in fact, making the smell of cesspits for Rochester Castle at the moment, but it's not finished yet, so I'm very sorry to say I didn't bring it with me. Oh, Tasha. Um, however, I... <laughs> it's brewing. Yeah, it's, it's brewing, yes. So what have you got for us next? Well, I was thinking we could talk about miasma and how actually bad smells used to be linked in history to bad health. Oh, yeah, I've always found that interesting, this idea of miasma. and I've never really known what it is other than, what, bad air? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good definition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, miasma is kind of, there's a reason that it's very difficult to understand because it's a term that's very loosely applied. But broadly speaking, it's bad air and smells that often come from like rotting stuff. And that infects people with diseases like plague or cholera, for example. Yeah, so talking of plague, I've just bought some rosemary essential oil here for you to have a little sniff. Because in those amazing beaked uh, plague doctor's masks, they would have herbs like rosemary and sage and angelica because it cov- but what they felt covered up the smell of the plague and so kept them safe. Yeah, I like this one. This has broken through the blockage. This yes, one is, yeah, yeah. yeah really we'll have you it. totally unblocked by the end of this podcast. So, presu- <laughs> thank you. Presumably then, uh, during the time of the, the plague and the Black Death, rosemary would have been a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. It was really popular. People would burn it. People would carry it around to smell to. Um, I'm just having a little sniff now as well. The price of it shot up. So Thomas Decker, the 17th century playwright, talks about how an armful of rosemary would be quite cheap. But then in times of plague, like a, a mere handful of it would kind of be out of the price range of kind of most everyday people. Um, so it became really, really expensive. And again, the same thing happened as with pine. Because people were using rosemary to kind of protect against plague all the time, it actually became linked to the smell of disease. It became a kind of fearful smell as well as one that was designed to protect people. What is it you actually do, William? Sorry, <laughs> that sounds like we're in a pub when somebody's been going on about something. And you go, well, what is it you do? <laughs> but that's how I feel. You're so sort of articulate on smell. Do you earn, earn a living from all this? I suppose I do in the sense, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an associate professor of history. I teach history. I research history. I'm currently part of a big european project called odoropa which is all about tracing the the history of smell in europe from the 1600s to the present and so in that project we've been thinking about what are the smells that have had significance kind of over time for various europeans um and using all kinds of complicated methods to do that so we've used computer science stuff and ai to go through thousands of texts to find smells for example um and then we've used chemistry to like take smells and analyze them to see what their component parts are so, yeah, I make a living from thinking about how the past smelled. The whole studio is now smelling of rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> Can you smell it over there, Melissa? Yeah, it's lovely. It's really cancelling out really the smell of hell. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give us another hell smell then to, to chase the rosemary away, William. 
well, I don't know. Tasha might want to go for the stinky at the next. Yes, stinky with, okay. one. all right. This, yeah. this is this is pretty bad. This is uh, the nineteen hundred tenements in New York. So it's very bodily. It's very fecal. Streets of New York. This wow. was made for the uh, Ulster American Folk Park uh, just outside of Belfast, and it's st- still for an exhibition called Bad Bridget that's currently it's still on show now until twenty twenty four. So here we go. Do not put this on yourself. You definitely don't want it lingering. Here I go. <laughs> mm, yeah, don't really like that. <laughs> Makes me feel a bit sick. Hooray! <laughs> Job well done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. no, thanks. I don't yeah. want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, def- this is a, a good definition between perfume and scent. This yeah. is not a perfume. This is a scent, um, and it's a scent that tells this story. Um, and in the case of the exhibition, it was uh, Irish emigration, particularly of women who left Ireland to search for a better life in New York. And uh, I made four smells for this exhibition that told that journey. So we start off with a very sort of lush Irish field sense, the sort of green grass of home. Then we moved on to the docks, which we can also smell later, the very industrial uh, petrol and smoke and uh, marine smell there. Then we moved on to the tenements, so this actual real lived experience. And I got to work with the curators and given a lot of information about people's lived experiences, reports of the overcrowding, of the toilets, of them, how many bodies were in one small space. And then I also made the smell of candy floss for Coney Island, which, although it was this very joyful space, was also a place of a lot of crime and things like that. So how you can use smell to really draw out a story and to make these histories come to life, I think is very exciting. We've been talking a lot about scent rather than perfume but for most of us the olfactory experience that we recognize most is perfumes at the duty-free isn't it yeah um but you say you're not really very interested in that well i can give you we can do a smell that i would say is more uh, sort of recognizable as say a perfume this uses fragrance materials that have um been around and used in perfumery over the years luxury materials things like frankincense myrrh rose musk ambergris civet they're quite um well thing is also that that uh, draws an attention to what is a malodorous and a, and a pleasant smell because yes. some of those elements on their own musk and civet and ambergris can be quite repellent but you need a little bit of funk in a perfume to really make it sing um, um musk and civet and ambergris from sort of the rude bits of voles and stuff yes so so um ambergris is from a sperm whale's stomach um civet is from an anal gland yeah it's from it's from <laughs> a gland located near the perineum of the civet cat um and ambergris and civet are really interesting because we've got coronation coming up soon for the new king and the original coronation oil had ambergris and civet in it but they've decided to uh, in inverted commas go vegan and so they won't be including the animal scents in the coronation oil political correctness gone mad <laughs> there you go the smell of political correctness yeah. yes well also there are synthetic versions available of these things so for ambergris they now use ambrox so there's there's new options that smell much the same but they're not from the thing yeah. so this is a fragrance i designed for leighton house museum which is in holland park and this is really inspired by the collection of this museum which is the home and studio of frederick leighton who was a pre-raphaelite painter and he was very interested in the east in turkey and syria and all these spaces that he took huge amounts of inspiration from it's very is decadent the right word that's a lovely word yeah yes it's like like young men in dressing gowns kind of thing does it make you think of a place do you have any images that come (sighs) pop into your head 
No, it makes me think of Oscar Wilde. Well, I mean, that's quite a nice comparison. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And actually, that, like... Bohemian. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Bohemian in the old sense, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Oscar Wilde was a really good pick there in terms of linking to that fragrance because kind of there is this whole movement in the 19th century of of writers and playwrights and artists who are really invested in this idea of the perfumed kind of orient and, and the idea of the oriental as being this kind of fragrant space and in fact Oscar Wilde writes a play uh, which when it was first stage he wanted to have like burning pyres of incense and stuff so um yeah that was a good pick tony good nose for history mm. although we're moving away aren't we from the idea that there are oriental things and occidental things are we moving away from that as far as the description of smells is concerned yeah definitely i mean so me and tasha were on a panel recently at leighton house where we talked about this with a with a number of other perfumers and art historians and fragrance experts and there is a real move to try and stop using terms like oriental because they're seen to be you know othering and and racist and in some ways there's no good reason to use them because a lot of the other terms that we use for perfumes aren't kind of place-based or they're not linked to imaginary spaces in the same way so people have talked about using other words like ambery for example but there's a bit of a controversy in the perfume world because most of this is coming from the states where there's a kind of movement to kind of decolonize perfume and then on the other hand you've got lots of french perfumers for whom you know, this makes them very angry and they feel that they own perfume and they don't want people to mess around with the vocabulary at all. That's intriguing, yeah. is it? Not that that description is stereotypical in any way whatsoever. <laughs> no, no, yeah. of course not, of course not. But there were some French French people in the audience at the talk who were looking very angry when we were talking. Yeah, it was, it was very, they sort of started off arms crossed, sort of huffing at things we were saying and then by the end they came to chat to us and said, oh, we're actually going to apply some of this to, uh, to our, our business. But in the French perfume world and the more sort of what you'd describe as a, a traditional perfume training. The word oriental means a warm, sensual note. And so perfumers learn this word as a descriptor. And we talked about language and there's a certain learned vocabulary that comes with French perfumery. So by breaking that down, you're actually, you're making it more accessible, more democratic. And words like oriental also only apply to a Western lens, whereas perfumery and scent is a worldwide thing, let alone the fact that the materials used in this fragrance are not from the West. A lot of them are from yeah. the East. And so the idea that we own the language and that we can put that term on it is colonial in its sense. So I can see there's a real need to sort of break that down. I don't think I'll ever not be able to say Fry's Turkish Delight. I know exactly <laughs> what that is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, if you're in Turkey, you'd call it locum. So that's what it's called. You know, that's isn't in Turkey they don't call it Turkish Delight. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. heisted by my own yeah. sneering vocabulary. <laughs> no, but over here it is. And actually, I've, I've actually studied uh, Tur Turkish Delight in Istanbul. And um, there's so much crossover when you look at the history of confectionery. So yeah. that's just one example of how rose, for instance, is important in the confectionery of both the UK and Turkey. And there's identities attached to both those things. So there's not one or the other. It's layered histories, layered stories. And actually, what's really interesting is that if you... So one of the speakers at this event we had, um, who's, a, who's a perfumer, Ezra Lloyd-Jackson, he made a scent that was designed to take something that would seem very normal to us, which is the smell of lavender, which is a very kind of British smell, I think, for a lot of people, because it's been used in soaps and, you know, anti-moth uh, preparations. and all Your sorts. auntie's drawers. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> As in chest of drawers. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, less about that, the better, I think. And uh, But... 
for other people the smell of lavender is is really exotic so like he he's got relatives here in the caribbean and they think lavender is is exotic uh. so what he wanted to do was try and create a perfume that made it feel like he was smelling lavender for the first time to make it feel like it was exotic rather than something deeply familiar from your from your aunt's pan there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guests this week, the sniffy smellologists, Tasha Marks and William Tallett. Give us another smell. So um, this is a smell, if we're thinking about perfume, this is, a, again, a, a scent that we made to go with a portrait, and it's a portrait of a woman from the 16th century. And in that portrait, she's holding a pair of perfumed gloves. And so this scent is designed to evoke the, the perfume, the smell of perfumed gloves. Because when perfume was developing as an industry, one of the kind of big areas in which it first developed in the 16th and 17th centuries was among leather makers and users. Because when you tan leather, it smells disgusting. Yeah. And so you want to kind of get over that smell. So they would lather the gloves with perfume and let them dry. So this has, again, things like civet and musk and stuff in it, uh, but also rose and things as well, and herbal stuff as well. Yep. Using your analytic vocabulary, <laughs> tell me what you can smell there. Oh, this is the true test. I mean, it's a very complex aroma, isn't it? She oh. hasn't gone out the room, by the I way. Have, She's yeah. just concentrating. I'm just thinking, yeah. I've got the smell of hell in my nostrils still as well. I'm going to get like chamomile and lavender and some quite like light floral energy from that. Mm. For me, it's quite a sort of a pale violet smell which is interesting right yeah. because of course what we're smelling here is the, the perfume itself whereas at the time they would have smelled it on the leather so yeah. you know the effect of mixing those two things together would have been very very different i think uh smell wise mm. um it's a nice reminder that you know recreating smells can often be quite difficult because you're not recreating the whole olfactory context you know additionally you know if you're wearing perfume gloves you might be at, at court surrounded by you know lots of quite smelly sweaty aristocrats as well so that would be in the mix you're both i know really interested in the idea of histories of smell there were weren't there some smelly museums in the 19th century is that right yes so museums were very smelly unintentionally in the 19th century so so particularly like the british museum which is set up in 1750s from a bequest from sir Hans sloan one of the things that's in sloan's bequest is loads of taxidermy taxidermy and also specimens in jars and 
taxidermy is a very smelly process it, in, it involves all kinds of chemicals and of course you're working with dead animal remains and then the the jar specimens will have been preserved in alcohol that had quite a strong smell as well so this is before formaldehyde and so in the 1830s when there's a parliamentary committee looking at bish museum and who's coming and what they think about the exhibits people complain about the smell of the jars of alcohol specimens and they they refer to them as hobgoblins because they're sort of quite frightening and quite smelly and horrible but for other people those smells are quite nice so there's people in the 1850s who write about how the whole museum smells of camphor because camphor is one of the preparations that's used to stop insects getting at the taxidermy so for a lot of people that becomes kind of the smell of the museum uh, got some today, with me, if you want. oh there you go we can smell some camphor <laughs> um let's have a go it's quite st- it smells sterile and medical it does yeah, that, yeah. i just think of a hospital bed yeah exactly i mean and camphor has a kind of long history sorry i'm smelling if you can hear me kind of breathing in there it has a long history of use in a medicinal context it's got a long use as kind of pesticides and insecticides as well which is another kind of key thing that smells have always been used for so the other day i was looking at a recipe from the 1740s to get rid of spiders that basically involve burning frankincense but yeah insecticides are another really big use of smells Listeners may not have noticed, but there is a vague chronology about the smells that you're presenting me with, isn't there? What's the next one you've got up your sleeve? So we've kind of got to the sort of 16th and 17th century now, because we've been talking about play, we've been talking about kind of the early history of perfume. So we could, the the other scent that I've got here is staying with that, which is pomanders. I've heard of pomanders, and I think there's something round that you keep cloves in, is that vaguely right absolutely so pomanders are balls of perfume paste that you can wear like around your hand or on a chain on your body Uh, but they they also refer to metal bejeweled often contraptions that you can keep smells in to smell to so they were also used to sort of protect against plague as well but there's an interesting kind of historical change in the way pomanders have been seen and used because in the 16th and 17th century, they were kind of all of these luxury materials all blended together. And then there's a they kind of disappear at the end of the 17th century. And then in the 20th century, they suddenly re-emerge. But they re-emerge as oranges studded with cloves. So yeah. that's what some people, some listeners may remember uh, pomanders as. And they're used kind of basically to keep your laundry nice and clean. Or at Christmas. Um, or at Christmas, yeah. So cloves are very much the smell of Christmas for some people. What's in this one? So that's got cloves, it's got orange peel and citrus. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. This sounds like I'm lying, but I swear I'm not. As soon as you tell me what smells are in it, I know that you're right. Well, yeah. there's a good reason for that. So our sense of smell is very suggestible. So there's been psychological, experimental psychology studies, for example, where they've given you the smell of... I think it's cheese and tell you it's sweaty feet for example yeah and kind of you know the same area of the brain will light up as if it's sweaty feet yeah. even though it's not sweaty feet it's cheese yeah. so you know I, I think what we call a smell can have a massive influence on how we smell it. also we very rarely use our sense of smell in isolation it normally comes with sight or with taste and that sort of thing so we use the other senses to support it we're not used to listening just to our nose so actually when you're told what a smell is or if you blind smell things as well if you had rosemary and lavender side by side but you weren't looking at them you're just smelling them you'd find them very hard to tell apart yeah. and then as soon as you open your eyes you're like, of course i know what this is so said so the sense of smell has always been sort of supported by the other senses whereas i think a nose first approach to history and exploration opens up all these new possibilities 
Tell me a bit about the the museums and presentation work that you're both involved in now, and then, uh, as a final coup de gras, let's let's have some of your wacky art smells. Lovely. Oh, I've got the smell of the docks as well. Oh, which we don't know. Yeah. A quick, a quick yeah. sniff of the docks then. So, so this was a Baldrick's fav- favourite smell in the whole world. This was made for the Museum of London Docklands. From I went through their oral history collection and had reports yeah. from the the docks in the 1950s. It's, isn't that interesting? It's got it's got more of a metallic smell than I would have expected. Yeah, because it, it's not an idealised version of the docks. It's not like a light little marine dock. It's the heavy industrial yeah, London it's docks. It's oily and it's yeah. oil and smog and fog and yeah. and um, a slight bluishness that comes from that that marine smell as well. I think often when I think of smells, I do think in colour. In colours, and I think that's a really interesting one because for a lot of people, the smells that they want to archive and that they'd like to see in museums are more industrial smells because that's the smells that have often become central to defining kind of where they live. So when we announced the Odor Rope project that I'm involved with at the moment, we we did loads of local BBC tele, BBC interviews on the radio and we had people ringing in and the, the smells they wanted to talk about were the smells of biscuit factories and the smells of breweries and the smells of coffee factories making instant coffee because they did emit really characteristic smells. So tell us about this project. Odoropa, we're taking massive amounts of digitised texts from the 1600s to the 1920s, feeding it all into a computer. The computer finds the smells for us. And then we're also using computer vision to look for smells in images, so traces of smoke, for example, in images. And then we're using those to basically create new stories about smell in the past. So, for example, I've just been writing about the smell of war, kind of from the 30 years war all the way through to the first world war and how it changed and getting those back into museums so getting people to think about the the smell of conflict for example um you know whether it's kind of gunpowder or gas warfare or whatever and you're doing something similar aren't you yeah so i i run a sort of creative practice i work with lots of different museums on creating smells for exhibitions smells of storytellers scented sculptures aromatic installations so i've worked with the British Museum, the V&A, National Gallery, all sort of creating a bespoke sensory interpretation for, for, for things. Shall we engage with some of your newest ones? Yeah, so this, um, I thought we'd start with the smell of happiness. So I was commissioned to make the smell of happiness and this was for the Welcome Collection. They had an exhibition called Joy. And uh, the smell of happiness, it was in collaboration with a photographer called Crystal Labas, who does these amazing analogue photographs of ancient woodlands. And she had gone to northern Japan where they coined the idea of forest bathing. So the idea of, of being at one with the forest and that being a very meditative uh, sense of, of pure primal joy. So the smell of happiness for her and that I created was the smell of the forest floor. And all of her photographs are taken at twilight. So if you imagine the sort of blue-green light of twilight just before... It's about to get dark. Oh, it's a lovely smell. I don't think I would have made that uh, <laughs> imaginative leap to yeah. the hours before dusk. But I can remember I actually did one of those uh, Japanese bathing yes. things once, which was supposed to represent something very inspirational and, and good feeling. But actually, all it reminded me of was going to school in the autumn. <laughs> that smell of the rain and yeah. the, the rotten old leaves. Well, the primary, one of the primary ingredients in this is something called petrichor, which is an aroma chemical that's synthesised from the earth. And it is the chemical that the earth releases after it rains. Ah. The Japanese context is really interesting because the Japanese have been leaders when it comes to kind of preserving smells. Yeah. So they, they had a, a thing where the government 
put out a survey and the people the population picked smells that they wanted to preserve and they now have a list of 100 fragrant places that are protected by the japanese government that's lovely um and then another smell that i made which was uh for the welcome collection it's a smell for a permanent gallery there called being human i know what this one is (laughs) i know what this one is i've been waiting all afternoon exciting i thought we'd end with a nice highlight this is Um, mother's milk it it? is this is the smell of human breast milk and this was a very interesting one to develop took a long time but i was originally tasked with making the smell of infection but because i knew that this sculpture is would be part of the permanent collection and therefore there for at least 10 years i wanted to make it a so-called pleasant smell and that narrowed it down quite a lot and breast milk has this great symbiotic relationship between mother and child when they're breastfeeding in that there's bacteria transferred that helps the baby digest the saccharides in the milk so this idea of positive gut bacteria and things like that so i'll give you this to smell Oh, it's a lovely smell. It is a lovely smell. It's making me feel warm and hugged. It's, it's, very, it's very fresh, but in a warm way. Fresh sometimes is a bit cold, but this is, no, this is very... Oh, yeah, you do feel like it's some goddess putting her arms around you. Lovely. Oh. <laughs> the thing at the Welcome Collection, the sculpture there, which is called 5318008, which I don't know if that means anything to you, if you were naughty at school. No, we won't tell me. It's boobies upside down in the calculator. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted it to sort of seem scientific, but actually it's playful. So scent is also super playful. Oh, Tasha, I think everyone ought to be able to smell that. Well, good news is is that that sculpture is in the permanent collection at the Welcome. So you can go and smell it for at least another five, six years. At the Welcome Museum opposite Euston Station. Indeed, yeah. And it's, as far as I know, I think it's the, uh, the first scented sculpture in any museum's permanent collection. So it's very exciting. Finally, I have a cunning plan for each of you. I always do this. It's not just this <laughs> A cunning plan for a scent that you haven't yet made, but you would love to make. So interestingly, when we talk about scents and we start to imagine and smell, a lot of people go to their grandparents. I think it is that first scented memories that are nostalgia. So the smell that I would like to create is quite a personal one. And I would like to create the smell of my grandmother's carpet because I think that would be very transportative and it's something that I would love to keep with me forever. Granny's house. I think scent is one of the first senses that develop in the body. So it's also some of our earliest memories, whether we realise it or not. But if you smell a smell that you haven't smelt for years, it transports you back there immediately. Very Proustian. Very indeed. <laughs> and for me, I think the the smell that, that really evokes a lot of memories for me and that I'd like to kind of remake and preserve is the smell on a kind of winter's evening that you get when there's a kind of smokiness in the air. I really like that smell and I would love to preserve that. Please pass me the mother's milk again. (laughs) (laughs) One final sniff. I'm holding it up to the microphone for all the listeners. Now breathe in. This is mother's milk. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my cunning cast produced by the gorgeously smelly Melissa Fitzgerald. And it's a Zinc Media production. Zinc Media.